It's Greg, the Ski Physical Therapist, and welcome to today's episode of the Leg Ski Podcast. On today's podcast, Gavin shares the details of how he almost lost his life when testing a pair of GS skis pre-released, causing him to slam into a tree at 40 plus miles per hour. There is so much to unpack from his story, so without further ado, let's welcome him to the show. All right. Hey, Gavin, welcome to the show. appreciate you coming on. Can you just tell everyone where you're coming from? Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Gavin McMillan. Uh, I am originally from Manchester, but uh, now living in London. Um, So uh, I uh, spend most of my time in London and um, get over to Austria whenever I can. Wonderful, wonderful. And how long have you been skiing for? Can you tell us kind of when that started for you? Uh, probably started skiing around about 13 or 14, um, I think, uh, went on a school skiing trip to Bulgaria. Um, so, uh, yeah, we were still, still in the old communist days, I think, just about for it to, uh, turn over to, um, uh, being in the, in the, uh, Western Europe as it is today. And, um, I basically, uh, refused to do the snowplow and decided that I would, the hockey stop until I could parallel turn got thrown out of class and uh, after a couple of days was was able to parallel ski so um, that was about the size of it from there I was completely and utterly hooked I just was straight downhill as fast as possible um, and I uh, try and get into those carving turns. Oh, that's amazing so if you've been trying to go as fast as possible did you ever get into ski racing at all? Uh, yeah um, I mean a few years later by the time I'd, I'd I gave up skiing probably for a short few years whilst I tried to make it as a professional cricketer um, and then went back to Austria um, and, and immediately uh, started taking up wherever I could um, in the local area, some local club races, uh, trying to beat Austrians. Uh, it was a, a great day when I finally got second to last and managed to beat an Austrian. <laughs> that is amazing. Oh my goodness. So being from um, England or the UK, you've um, obviously had a great opportunity to travel a lot. Do you have a favorite place that you like to go ski or that you've been skiing before? Totally, yeah. Uh, it's a place called Niederau in Austria, which is a, a tiny little village near a world famous place called Kitzbühel. Uh, everybody who's a skier will know that for the, the Hanenkamp downhill that they have every single year. But um, I love it pr- precisely because it's the opposite of that. It's not a, it's not a big, busy resort um it's got a couple of really nice really challenging runs it's part of the bigger wider area called ski jewel so you can go off and you can find some other mountains it's got uh, a lift pass that's linked up to two or three areas um you can buy a whole pass for the whole of the alps the the the, the, the alps region if you want to and, and get on a bus and start going out to places or you can stay local um and for me um i, I love staying local because on a perfect bluebird day um, when you've got the hard, crisp corduroy snow, I'll, I'll be the first man up the mountain, the last one off it. Um, and there's a run called the Lana Kopfel, which used to be a, 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 an FIS approved um, Super G and downhill run. That's it's just got everything. I just absolutely love it. I could see it in my mind now if I closed my eyes. Um, so I will hammer down that at as fast as I can possibly go. Um, hit speeds of nearly 90 miles an hour at times. Oh, that is phenomenal. So being a a uh, skier that loves to ski fast do you mostly ski front side on piece then um yes i would say so um although when i first started going out to austria um the 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 funny thing about a lot of my skiing stuff or a lot of my sports stuff is is adverse events result in really positive results and uh, on the first day i went to austria 
me and my girlfriend pitched up to a bar and stuck our ski equipment in the uh, in the, um, the cloakrooms. And I said to the barman, will it get stolen? You know, if you just leave it there, do we need to, you know, lock it up or whatever? He's like, no, this is Austria. There's no crime rate. So we got drunk. Uh, a few hours later, went back. It was a big hole where all of our ski kit used to be. It had all been stolen, um, probably by some English people, I hasten to add, not, not by Austrians. Um, and from there, he was so mortified that he took it upon himself to make sure that, you know, he drove me home, he picked me up the next morning, he took me to the ski shop, he introduced me to the local ski shop owner who um, happened to be a, uh, an ex-world uh, champion of ski instructors, Super G racer. Um, her husband was an ex-world uh, champion powder eights skier um and and from there i just went from strength to strength with my skiing because we just made so many friends through that that i went back and back and i must have been to that place i don't know uh, i've lost count of the amount of times that i've been there i turn up and i'm known as gav the crazy englishman basically they all know that i'll be hammering down that mountain <laughs> as fast as possible oh man that is a horrendous story that turned out to be for the better over the long years huh yeah completely yeah i mean you know um, those are the good things about sport, really. I suppose you, you have a common interest and things happen and people rally together and you suddenly realise why you do sports because of that camaraderie and, and the way things go. But certainly I made an unbelievable amount of friends and it's almost my view as my second home, really. If I could, if it wasn't for Brexit, which is a real pain because it stops us going over there freely, um, you know, I, I would have been aiming to spend half my year in Austria and half my year in 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 the uk in the long term it was just a pity brexit happened to stop that oh that's so cool um over the years then how has skiing influenced your life probably just it brought me back to knowing where myself was probably i mean after i tried professional cricket um i hadn't quite realized how much failing to get to the level i wanted to the full professional contract level affected me I always blocked it out and just said well you know I'll be as competitive at corporate life as I will be at, as I was at sporting life um, and then skiing it, it seized my imagination um, immediately when I did it when I was a little a young teenager but after going back to Austria and doing it a couple of a few years after going back one of my friends um, Eddie he uh, worked for a ski school uh, as a snowboard instructor and they were decimated by flu um, and had lost a load of people and couldn't satisfy their uh, their lessons card for the day so he just basically said, can you help us out so I went and did some private small groups for a couple of days um, and it just you know it, I got paid not a lot at all for a few hours work each day but the way that I enjoyed it was just off the charts compared to what I enjoy my daily corporate life to be um, and it just made me realize that you know I love sports so much um, that I needed to get back to it and um, skiing, despite cricket having been my first passion and, and a sport of well over 30 years, I probably love skiing even more than I love cricket just because it just fires something within me. All I have to do is fly to Austria and see the top of the Alps and the, the white snow caps stretching out forever in front on the plane as you come into land. And that's it. I'm just reduced to being a child at Christmas and um, grinning from the inside out after a couple of days whatever worries I might have been carrying or whatever stresses I might have had gone forgotten completely I'm just immersed in being in the mountains and skiing and 
every night I'll be the, the, the last person off the hill, the first person up the next morning, almost every day. Uh, not even a rest day most of the time. I'll just ski a light day rather than having a, a rest day. It's just, I just absolutely love it. It's almost like I was born in the wrong place. I love that. It's it's such an activity where you just feel so free and like like you're saying, free from the stress of like society, but also just free to go around the whole mountain and just do it how you want to ski. So I love that. Yeah, and there, there's something about the involvement of it because of the nature of it, because it's a highly complex motor activity. And because of the environment, you've got to be aware of it. You become so absorbed in what you're doing that the level of detail that you appreciate in the moment is something that I would never get to in my daily life as a contract negotiator because, all right, I'm reading words and I'm thinking about legal concepts, but it's just not the same as being mid-carved through a steep slope on a sunny day and feeling your boot flex and your edge just turn a little bit more, a little bit more and how that affects the forces through your body and and the positioning and, and the pleasure that you get from it. And you just, there's just times when I just whoop, whoop out loud halfway through a car or something like that. Yeah. Over the years, have you picked a specific ski or specific brand that you've liked the most? A specific brand of kit? Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose I like vocal skis. Um, I have used a, a fair few vocal skis, but I like, I like head the head rebels skis they're really nice skis um and um um oh the boots i forget the name of now um i will move on from the boots but there's there, there's also some some boots that i've never had i had one pair of them and they fitted straight away with a minimal amount of um adjustment by the boot mm -hmm. tech um and i've just stuck with that brand forever um because they fit and, and most people have so many troubles with ski boots that when you find boots that fit like that, it's, um, you know, you just carry on with them. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is like one thing I tell everyone if they're getting into the sport, it's like, you know, you can get, pick up whatever skis you want, but like, don't cheap out on the boots because that is something that will ruin your day. If you have foot pain. Most important thing. Most important thing. I mean, if there's one piece of kit that you're going to buy, buy boots, don't buy skis, buy boots because you can hire skis and, you know, and almost actually until you get to a certain level, you should do that. You shouldn't buy skis. But boots, if you can't walk around your boots in the Apro ski bar afterwards after wearing them all day, then there's something wrong. You, they should be just as almost as comfortable to wear as a regular pair of hiking boots or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, Gavin, I wouldn't have brought you on the podcast if you uh, didn't have an injury history related to the sport of skiing. <laughs> so uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, your injury history and what happened? Yeah, so uh, it was the 26th of January, 2020, uh, on my favorite run, the, the Lana Kopfel, and testing a, a pair of new uh, FIS um, GS race skis. I won't name the brand in case people accidentally blame them when it was not really that at all. Um, but, um, the uh, I had what's called a pre-release, um, which is where at the entry to the turn, you put so much pressure through your ski, whether it's you putting pressure through the turn or the, the confluence of the piece coming back and pushing back on the ski um, causes the spring setting to think that you're actually in a crash on the exit of, of a turn. And so it releases the binding. So I was 
coming around uh, what I call the S bend of death for years, um, jokingly, not realizing that it would nearly come true. Um, and and it's got a 90 degree entry quite fast where you slow down hard on a, on a steep down pitch to a, a 130 degree left turn um, and then to a negative camber falls away as you come off the turn, you're coming left um, and the camber's falling away right to some trees on a narrow track. Um, and as I came out of the um, hairpin, uh, whereas normally I would just fluff straight through the narrow track because they were a new pair of skis for some reason, I just decided to come up and put an extra turn in at that point and I pre-released ski. So I'm, I'm probably doing, I don't know, 60 Ks, 70 Ks, slower than I would normally have gone. So yeah, I call it 60 Ks. Um, and I've bowled over um, and rolled down the negative camber and ended up hitting two trees, um, at least two trees, I think, at about, probably at about 30 miles an hour at impact speed. And I just felt the whole of my body break. I remember that my, I think it was my right side crashed into the tree and everything down this side, I just felt down my right side, I just felt it crack from my shoulder through my ribs. It was a stabbing pain. Um, and then I hit other things. I didn't remember much after that. I landed on all fours. Having been a human pinball, I couldn't breathe. So I forced myself to breathe hard and I coughed out a cloud of blood. Uh, at which point I thought, this really isn't good because I've punctured a lung as well as broken lots. So I lay down for a couple of minutes and then crawled back on my back 10 meters towards the piece because I was down a bit from the piece so I could shout for help. At which point I realised my leg was a little bit floppy as well and I could see bones kind of sticking out at funny angles. Um, so I, I texted my friend and said, I think I might have broken your skis that you've lent me that I'm testing. And could you order me a helicopter, please? I'm on the extent of death in the trees. Um, luckily after that, uh, uh, another guy turned up and found me. But the, the upshot was that I broke three fractures in my shoulder, 12 fractured ribs, flail chest, uh, pneumothorax, punctured lung that is, um, hemothorax, blood in your lungs, um, seven fractures of the vertebrae, including one which had a wedge fracture, a lateral fracture, and what they call a burst fracture where fragmentation normally comes out. Um, but it didn't, and that was one of the luckiest bits ever. Um, a shattered tibial plateau, a severed fibula head at the knee end, all of the knee ligaments severed, patella displaced, and a little bit of the uh, ankle was messed up as well, where I'd had a previous injury. So some of the nuts and bolts and screws work were a little bit loosened. Um, so yeah, that was quite a bad um, accident. All up, it was about 25 plus fractures and several ligaments and cut nerves and stuff. Yeah, significant, significant injury, obviously, not just like one area of the body, but in the entire right side. Um, just because I'm not super familiar with how the medical system works on snow over in Europe, what happened after you went down? They are absolutely amazing in Austria. Um, I mean, you probably, if it, if I'd have been in Britain, I'd on a, because effectively it was very similar to a motorbike crash, right? You, you ride your motorbike into something at, at that kind of speed. I don't think if I'd have been on a highway in England, I would have got to hospital any quicker than, than they got me to hospital into the operating theatre. Um, somebody, the way it works is somebody sees you on piste, 
they'll go down to the nearest lift and tell someone there's an accident. They'll send down the mountain patrol with the banana boat, as we call it, the big orange stretcher. Um, they'll do prelim checks and they instantly knew um, from um, my state and my relayance of, of the injuries that I thought I had. That there was no way they were moving me, so they called the helicopter straight away. Um, the helicopter came in and landed with a full medical team, three of them, uh, one trauma doctor and a couple of, I don't know what the others were, um, whether they're nurses or ambulance or what, um, uh, um, uh, paramedics, um, but three of them. Um, and they put me on a spine board, put that onto a metal stretcher, um, and then the helicopter hovered over the trees and winched me out of the trees with the doctor standing legs akimbo on the stretcher. And they rode me down the bottom of the mountain like that. I've got a picture of the, the doctor. You can see him hanging onto the chain with his harness stood on the stretcher um, and they took me down to the bottom of the lift where there's a, a car park and, and opened the uh, hydraulic floor of the helicopter up and swung it out and put me on the helicopter and, and took me off to hospital. Um, so I was in hospital fairly quickly. From there, uh, from there, it was just, you know, as soon as I got to the, the, the Austrian hospital, it was just a huge team of people, cut all the clothes off into the scanner, um, do a whole bunch of um, scans and, and work out where the injuries were straight into surgery um, and, and from there into the ITU unit and wake up a day later going, what happened? Wow. Yeah. Very significant trauma. Um, but that is amazing that they responded so quickly because I mean, like I'm sure there's certain areas if they didn't respond like that, you potentially could have lost your life with like coughing up blood or the collapsed lung with the pneumothorax. Uh, well, the, the flail chest and the cough and the, and the collapsed lung because um, a flail chest is like, if you imagine a, a bowling ball into your chest, that's the nature of the injury. It snaps the ribs in two separate places. So the lung actually can't inflate. So once it's punctured and it's filling with blood, then you can drown in the fluid um, if, if it doesn't occur. Um, so yeah, um, potentially, but even more so, um, you know, if I'd hit that tree when I came back to England and they did, um, another set of scans in, in a brand new scanner that was just unbelievable with the definition of the pictures. You could clearly see in the uh, burst fracture um, that there was five or six tiny pieces of bone which should have exploded out like a fragment from a grenade, which didn't. Because the, 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 the crunching pressure as my spine folded was just enough not to push that out as an uh, forwards into the spinal column um and, and if i'd hit that tree a little bit faster or a different angle then potentially i could have been paralyzed there and i would have been too far down the piece to be able to have shouted to get help so even that could have been been the end um so yeah wow wow that's very that's scary <laughs> yeah I'm lucky in that I think I was born somewhere without a bit of a fear switch. I don't really think about fear. It's like it happens or it doesn't. You regret it afterwards, but I'm not going to think about it the next time. The first thing I'll do is try and have a half a day on a piece to make sure I can do the turns, but I'll go back to that accident site as soon as possible and make friends with it again and make my peace with it. So you just lock it away and put it in a box and that's it. It's done. Um, there's no point being scared about stuff because that'll just make it happen more. Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll get into the after getting back to skiing, but I'm very curious. So after you were in the hospital, did you then go back to the UK and um, do we have there? Is that what ended up happening? Uh, yeah. Um, I mean, I was in hospital in Austria for about five weeks. 
Then I was in hospital again when I, I was air, vac air medivac back to England, another three weeks in the UK. And I should have started rehab straight away, except for two days after I was released from hospital, COVID lockdown happened. So all of the services were suspended and it basically took, I basically didn't get any rehab um, at all um, that was organized after that point because they weren't allowed to do it. Um, so it was all reliant on doing it myself, um, which is fine because I did a sports science degree. I um, played a semi-professional at cricket. So I had plenty of experience of injury and what to do. But the, the simple fact is that I have a bit of a long-term problem with the cut nerves um, that have affected how everything works from the knee down to the foot on the right side. I can no longer feel all of my toes properly and the, the sort of pins and needles I get in my foot varies from day to day, depending, I guess, on the particular way that the foot lands and the pressure happens at the knee. And it then it puts some pressure on the nerves and it changes. Uh, but to start with, I had no motor function in the shin muscles at the front. Um, and they did some electrode tests where they passed an electric charge through the muscle. It was zero response at all. Um, so they thought I was going to have drop foot and a potential paralysis, but nearly all of that's come back. Um, and I'd probably say I'm, I'm at over about 90% now. Um, but the biggest problem is muscle mass around my inside quad. That just won't, it won't come back. So I don't quite know how to get over that. Um, the associated lung problems that I've got create a bit of a, a problem with uh, breathing and doing aerobic exercise, which would be my favorite, get back on a bike to try and build my thigh up doesn't really work. Um, so it's just a bit of a, just tough it out and see. Um, I've got to hope that I can get enough muscle mass in the end to get stability because at the moment it collapses inwards and that'll never work on skis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, with with COVID and everything happening, it's just a very unfortunate set of circumstances, obviously leading up to that. And not having guidance from physiotherapists can be really, really challenging. Um, I don't know like what your support system looks like at home, but like I, I have to imagine there is some psychological limitations to one being banged up and then two trying to figure this out on your own. Um, can you go through like yeah. what that looks like? Yeah, I mean, being limited inside has been the biggest challenge and still is, to be honest with you, because, um, you know, sport, I, I almost have to split my life now into before the accident and after the accident, because before the accident, I was 44 years old, still um, at, you know, 83 kilos, something like that, still very fit, um, pretty much six pack and no fat whatsoever able to ski over 100 miles in a day uh no problem at all and get up and do it all again the next day now probably 95 kilos quite overweight as far as i'm concerned although probably not considering the general population but um it it makes me um i suppose frustrated that i can't be the person that i used to be um, and that's the biggest, longest psychological impact from it. The rest of it, the physical side of it, and the, and the finding a support system, that wasn't such a problem because, you know, I, I've just had lots of contacts that I can use to get those bits of support um, and was able to find enough um, working knowledge based on what I already knew and, and accessing information on the internet to, to do what I could in terms of rehab exercises that really wasn't too much of a problem for me but certainly the 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 being locked up and, and not being able to exercise in the same way 
Um, that is a big enduring frustration. I can't I can't wait for the day when I can just walk up for a nursery slope and see if I can do some basic turns down a nursery slope. Yeah, so I mean, I think that's a very common problem for many people that are injured that they lose their sense of like what normal is for them before. Um, did you have any strategies or do you currently use any strategies to help overcome any of those more like mental barriers that you have? No laws are broken, but I get in my car and I go and drive because I used to like driving on the track and um, doing uh, uh, high spirited driving, shall we say, is, is always a good release because it's quite close to doing something like skiing. You get the thrill of the speed. So go and find an open road somewhere and have a big blast. Um, get back to feeling how you would with an adrenaline, a bit of an adrenaline rush. So yeah, that's probably my best release. I love that. Yeah. So if like you uh, like that adrenaline release or that going fast type um, feel um, like getting in your car or say maybe you like to mountain bike, like trying to get down the hill, mountain biking. Absolutely. Anything that gets you in the moment for a while to forget what you're doing because you become involved in executing a task and the performance aspect of it, which is, you know, irrespective of the level of um, physical effort because you're not putting in that much physical effort in a normal car. Um, but the involvement of your senses and the the feeling that you get of being in that moment where you've just got to focus on everything that is there then and only that is 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 the release in itself because that's where I've always felt I'm you know at my at my most me is in that performance moment. I love that that uh, aspect. I'm actually working with a company right now. They're called Skytech Sports to try and bring this simulator. It's a ski simulator to Seattle, and um, what it'll do is simulate basically you going down the slope without you actually moving forward, but you can still go side to side. And I think that would be a huge release for people that like, you know, you can't take the impact of skiing, but maybe you can go side to side and just get that little microdose of like, what does it feel like to actually be on the slopes again? And like really have that vision for, Oh man, like I actually can get back to this if I like really put my mind to it. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that I thought about when I was doing some work on the wobble board and, and if you get a wobble board that's that's got the right shape, because it's all different kinds. But if you get if you get one that's got a big enough disc on the top, um, and and it's got the circular, the semicircular wood on the bottom, then you can almost get yourself into skiing shapes when you're on the board. And if you get the balance right, and and on a big screen, if you then put up some um, helmet cam video when you're in the first person going down, you can start to get that feeling of of being on the slope. And it occurred to me then that get a VR suit, um, a virtual reality suit, and, and then you could, that you could give you proprioception reactions um, with a VR headset, um, then you could very well actually have a kind of a training and a recovery tool built around that because you know, to, get, to get an app written for it um, would be fine, but getting the inputs and getting the ski runs and the recordings for it That'd be fun going on a tour mm-hmm. around all of the world's best runs and going on the crest to run and the, the handing cam and stuff and, and getting some filming of that and then and getting it into an app and, and, and getting people to do their home training based on being on a, a specially set up wobble board with some sensors in the suit or something. It could be really, really good. Yeah, I love that. Like either using VR as like a visualization technique or physically like getting in front of the TV and imagine, imagining yourself going down, I think are huge uh, tools that you can use to overcome the psychological aspects of not physically being able to do the activity, but at least giving your, yourself the mental release of 
um, what it looks like to do that. So super yeah. cool. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the the, the mental imagery and, and, and mental aspects um, of uh, sport because you can get so much from becoming immersed in the psychological pictures that you can build for yourself or going to the movies in your head kind of concept um, that you almost if you if you get good enough at that VR I'm not sure how much extra it actually adds to it the, the thing that it might add is when you can get onto an electronic setup that gives you pressure back as if you are putting in inputs and receiving proprioceptive feedback but by then you're into some considerable investment to develop systems like that yeah precisely precisely but i think there's a opportunity there and hopefully in the future someone will uh someone will invent it yeah yeah for sure yeah i mean have you seen those um the ski machines which are almost uh, they're a bit like treadmills or the cycle um um the, the static cycle um ergo things with the, with the fans on them where, uh -huh. where they go from side to side um and you can attach your ski boots and your bindings to them um, and get down into the, the different positions. There's, there's a couple of machines like that that we have in Europe. I forget the name of them now. I have seen that. I feel, I forget the name of it, but um, yeah, a lot of people have actually asked, reached out and, and asked like, is this something that's good for rehab? And I tell them, yes, yeah, it's a good component of it, but it's not everything. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's almost, I think people almost want to find the magic trick or the magic pill and that's kind of that approach to it. It's like, oh, if I use that machine, will that be the magic rehab thing? Well, no, because rehab starts with doing the small things first to build the small muscles and the small recovery to get the stability back before you start going to the big thing. Where those things really come in is probably things like off-season training or the last bit of rehab to get your, um, you know, a little bit of aerobic fitness as well as movement-specific fitness back before you take it to the piece it's a less controllable environment but as a rehab tool at the start there's probably not a lot of answer other than to grind out the kind of painful boring little exercises sets that you've just got to do to get that movement that we all take for granted back when you fit yeah you make such a good point there it's like the the little things are mundane but they're so important and if you don't build the little like small stability muscles you're not going to be able to get back to doing the big compound movements and do them efficiently. You're almost going to engineer in a likelihood of a re-injury at some point because your big muscles will start to twist you out of shape because the stability won't be there underneath it. Precisely, precisely. So earlier you mentioned that you've actually gone back to the crash site and been able to ski down the same the same slope. Is that correct? No, I so said that's what I will do. First oh, time I will. managed to get back to that mountain, yeah. No, I've, okay. I've not been back. I've not managed to get back there. Um, I mean, a couple of years, a few years ago when I broke my ankle, um, I, I, I committed the cardinal sin after a, a training day um, where you go, I'm going to stop now. No, I'm going to have one more run because I want to break 85 miles an hour on that last shuss. So I went for it. And of course, uh, it was a bad decision. I was a little bit tired or the snow was a little bit too slushy or both. And I upended and I fractured my ankle. Um, so uh, the first thing I did when I came back the next season was go precisely to that site and just sit there and, and make peace with it and then move on and forget it. I just think that, you know, if you're going to recover from an injury, um, you know, you need to deal with the potential for, um, 
I'm going to call it PTSD because that's what the guys tried to tell me in the hospital that I might suffer from. I was like, don't be silly. I've not been to Afghanistan or, or, or had anything really, really bad happen, like getting blown up. But you don't want to have those flashbacks and the residual fears that might be created by a bad event going back to haunt you. And you've just got to go back to it and say, it happened. And if I'm going to take a risky sport as my sport, I accept that risk. And now I'm going to go and put that event to bed. I'm going to just say, that's it. I've dealt with it because I need to go through it, literally, because it was at the bottom of the shuss of the fastest part of the mountain. So I would have to go through the accident site every time I went down that run. And if you have an uh-oh every time you go down that, then you're going to have a little point of where you can have another accident. And you can't have that. So you need to get rid of that little bump straight away in your psychological mind. And then put some runs in fast, straight past it, straight away. As soon as you've done it, that's it, it's gone. Um, because otherwise, um, you know, you're going to carry that with you. So just get back on the horse straight away. Yeah, I think it, it's, I would say it's easier said than done. But like you're saying, over time, whether it takes graded exposure, meaning you, it like takes a lot of slow runs to get like progressed up to that point until you get past it. It's like, if you never deal with it and you just kind of put it on the back burner and you're like, ah, it'll go away on its own. It's never going to go away on its own unless you intentionally, like you're saying, like nip it in the bud and, and take action to, to block it away. You have to, you have to figure out what your fear might be and face it down and tell you, teach yourself you can beat it. Cause otherwise you'll build yourself a barrier in your head. And, and, and that can happen with injury or it can happen just with, you know, a fear of heights or, you know, one of the things that I often used to find amongst clients was that they'd have a fear of a particular type of gradient or a particular type of run, um, ice, height, wind, fog, whatever. Something would trigger them. And once the fear kicks in, they become useless. All of the skills that they've learned up to that point, they, they leave them and they can't follow their usual process in their mind, whatever that is, to executing their skills. and and that's when things get really dangerous out on the mountain because everything that is becoming second nature through that conscious to unconscious mind skill transfer process becomes lost just for a short while. But all it takes is a tenth of a second for something to go. And then that's it. You're going to have a big accident. You can't recover it. Um, and, 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 and you've just got to protect yourself against that, whatever. And if you're in the business of enjoying um, extreme sporting activities you've got to close that one out straight away absolutely and i might be a little bit privileged in that because i played sport to a professional level uh, because i've had that situation where you've faced injury a lot then i've learned how to not be scared of getting injured how to go through the process of recovering and how to face up to the res residue of it and go straight back on the horse afterwards but one of the things that I've found teaching people is that if you can find a way to make them go, oh, wow, I did that, at a point of the things they fear, they will immediately take two, three, four steps forward very fast after that. Yeah. I like the example of like using like your circle of comfort. And then it's like, as you push to that barrier of comfort, your mind is going to tell you, hey, I don't want to push beyond that. But the thing is, you don't know what's beyond that circle because this is your circle of comfort. And it's like your ability level may be like 
10 times bigger. But if you're just in this small bubble and you're not willing to allow yourself to escape out of that bubble, you don't know like what you can achieve beyond that. And it probably is that exactly 10 times more. I mean, you know, every human, I, I sort of think every human is unlimited. The thing that limits them is what they've learned to date or what they've been taught that they shouldn't do for no reason. Um, you know, I've jumped out of airplanes quite a few times. I had a free fall skydiver's license. Um, and the first time that I jumped out of an airplane on my own after I'd passed my, my license test, I forgot absolutely everything. I jumped out of the plane, had a really crap exit, tumbled over, forward rolls, maybe it was backward rolls, can't quite remember, but anyway, doing somersaults through the air. And I saw the plane, I was like, one, two, three, four, as I'm circling around and I'm like, I felt like I was clawing at the air, like someone off a building trying to stop myself um, hitting, hitting the floor. And then all of a sudden the training kicked in and I just spread my arms and, and put my body in the right position and got it under control. And that's the difference between pushing the boundary, hitting the boundary and going, oh shit, what am I doing? And realizing you have the tools to be able to manage it. And it all happened in the space of however many, I don't know, maybe a thousand foot, two thousand foot out of the plane. And, and after that, it's fine. Um, and and I, I always kind of come back to that as an example. Uh, another one is the first time you want to do a jump or go off a, a little cliff jump or whatever. Um, come up to it and go, am I ready to do this yet? Yes or no. And if your instinct is no, you're not. But at some point when you go, yeah, no, you've got to go, yes and just bite the bullet and do it but be confident you will succeed because as soon as you're in the air and you land it you're in a new world you don't know what you're doing after that point but you know you've just put the old situation behind you um and and uh, every time you reach a new peak the first thing you should see is how many other peaks there are out there ahead of you faster to get to not what's down below or where you've come from yeah look back in a minute but first of all go i'm here now i can go up there and you're one closer to going higher and higher and higher. Yeah, I love that. You just build off the little wins. And, and that can even be like through the rehab process, whether you're looking at oh, range of motion or looking at like things that you can just do and activities that you can do. You look at like, okay, I have this game. Now what, like, what is my big picture if it's getting back to skiing? Um, like seeing how do I get back to skiing, but not just maybe not even getting back to the level in which you like had prior to injury, but even beyond that, you know. Completely. Um, and, and, here's, and here's my kind of example that embodies that completely. I've got a stand-up sandman in the back garden for karate training. When I can execute a full set of kicks and punches, work around that dummy 360 off both legs and end with spinning kicks to its head off my bad leg and there's no reaction in my knee i'm ready to go back to skiing because i'll be able to move around in 360 degrees and put pressure and put torsion on the joint um, and execute kicks and then i'll know that i've got balance i've got core strength i've got coordination and the only thing i've got to do now is go and test my ability on skis uh, because i'll have that confidence built up from going through lots of little wins of 
being able to execute more limited ranges of movement moves until I can get to that, join it all up into a big series of movements. And then you're ready to take that out of one sporting environment to another because you built up confidence. And yeah. Exactly the same for rehab. You build up your rehab confidence. And, and once you've got to the end of it and you know you can carry through lots of sets of complex movements, whereas you started off doing small sets of simple movements, then you've got to uh, a great point to go back to actually taking your sport on again. Absolutely. Yeah. I think cross training has a huge impact. So it's really yeah. exciting um, and really formative. Gavin, what are your like next steps or what are the next things that you're thinking in terms of skiing for you? Well, I mean, I guess the first thing is get back on piste, get back down that run that hurt me. And then the world is my oyster. You know, I, I, I would, I would, I would love to be able to get back and, and, and do some masters racing. Um, and you never know what happens if you can, but to be honest, if I can get back to doing a week of holiday skiing and, and just have a good time, that's, that's perfect. I'll be happy with that. Um, and then after that, I, I, I've considered whether or not I should write a book. Um, I am mad. It would be, um, for inspiration, aspiration, motivation, um, application and dedication. And if you apply all of those things, um, as well as get the right training and, and information about what you're doing, then you will succeed. So if I, if I can put all of those things together with a bit of my sports psychology, some stories from other people, uh, and maybe it's one of those kind of like self-help books that might work. Oh, that's really cool. I didn't even know that. So we'll have to stay tuned in and see what that book looks like. Yep. Yep. Do that. That would be good. Um, well, Gavin, I think this is going to have to just be a part one of what we're talking about because part two, I really want to interview you again after you get back to On Peace and see like what that experience yep. was like for you and have the Happy listeners to. follow up and, and hear what that looks like. But yep. um, yeah, if you don't have anything else to talk about um, on today's podcast, we can cover it the next time we get there and, and all the challenges that it took for you to get back to the ski hill. But I really appreciate you taking the time today um, to talk with me. If people are interested in hearing um, how you overcame some of your psychological barriers, where can they uh, find out more about you? Uh, the easiest way is uh, contact me through Facebook. Um, you see my name up there, Gavin McMillan. Um, that can get me on Facebook that way. It's just the second M in McMillan is a small M and, and you'll find me. Awesome. Um, yeah. And uh, I can link your name in the show notes too. And then Gavin, your, the, the ski club that you um, are affiliated with, what is the name of that one as well? And I can tag that as well in the show notes. Um, the uh, Friends in High Places Club at gmail.com was my uh, business um, ski club. Um, because I've not skied now for so long, uh, I don't have um, an affiliation with a particular club right now. So uh, the best way is just contact me direct. Cool. Well, thanks so much, Gavin. Really appreciate it. And we will uh, have to chat again once you're back to the snow and uh, just see how you uh, conquered that, that peak that you were talking about. Cool. Thanks for the invite, Greg. It's been fun. Cheers. All right. Yeah, you have a great day. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Legacy Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please share this podcast with your ski community and follow it so you don't miss another episode. Also, if you have a cool story and would like to be featured on the podcast, please reach out to the team. 
Lastly, if you're interested in working with me, you can book a strategy call at www.meettheskipt.com where I'll help you figure out the next best steps to keep you moving towards your journey of a lifetime of skiing.